In addition to taking care of one another inside the church, what if we developed a lifestyle taking care of the most needy outside the walls of the church? How would that change the community and our city? Bob Moffat, president and founder of Harvest Foundation in Phoenix, along with Pastor Julian Gibb, talk with pastors and leaders about how sacrificial love by those in the church to those in need outside the church has helped people see and embrace Jesus Christ. It's that demonstration of Jesus' greatest commandment that we'll hear more about today on The Kingdom and Its Stories. Welcome, everybody, to this Monday afternoon broadcast of The Kingdom and Its Stories. I am here uh, today with uh, Julian Gibb, who is my co-host, and we have the privilege uh, today of interviewing Neil Montgomery, who is one of the many pastors at Scottsdale Bible Church. And Neil, we're delighted to have you with us. And um, just uh, as a background for those who are listening, The Kingdom and Its Stories is a regular broadcast where we bring in people who have helped God's people um, in under their shepherdship to be bridges of love, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and equipping them so that uh, not only do people hear the story of God's love, but they see it, and they're able to, um, to uh, even though they don't recognize the source of that goodness, they see the goodness and they're attracted to it. And as they learn more about it, they come to know who Jesus is. So, Neil, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us today. Uh, it's great to be here. Neil, tell us a little bit about, about yourself, your journey, uh, what it is you do. <laughs> well, I'm just celebrating about 33 years as a, a pastor. I've lived in Canada and Wisconsin and, and uh, most recently California before coming out to, to the valley here. I've been here seven and a half years, and I wear a variety of hats here at Scottsdale Bible Church. If you know much about it, it's a fairly large church, and so there's a lot of moving parts and I've been a part of planting some of our new multi-site campuses, as well as assisting our senior pastor in providing congregational care and shepherding for our, our growing flock. So what, at Scottsdale, as you say, you know, it's this wonderful, uh, I've been there, this, this wonderful auditorium, great preacher, uh, place for the youth, uh, more importantly, the coffee shop. Um, but yes, you have all these wonderful things. Um, but what's your point? What, what, what are you trying to achieve as a, as a, as a body of, of people? You know, and it, it really, in its simplest form, uh, I think we churches are always guilty of making the gospel and its simplicity very complex because then that makes us sound like we know stuff and then people respect us. And sometimes we can be guilty of saying we want more people coming and more money coming to our coffers. Um, and there's a reality that as you grow, uh, many times you can lose yourself in bigness. Uh, and churches can become institutions where you sometimes wonder, are we selling pizza or are we helping people know Jesus? And, and so it, it's a real fight every day. But in its essence, we're really striving to do everything, every ministry, every dollar, every staff person to mobilize them to help people who don't know Jesus simply come to know Jesus. Amen. So, so how do you get to know Jesus? 
<laughs> Let me talk to you offline. You know, it, it is really hard because I, I think we try to get people to come to our programs. And, and, you know, we've had these books written by like Leadership Network on attractional versus missional models. And we love to we love to come up with the hybrid church. Dave Browning wrote a great book a number of years ago on on the different churches. And but at the end of the day. I mean, we simply want to help people. Like I have this little saying that I used to, when I was a senior pastor in California, I put it on our little welcome pens. And it simply was this, freeing people to fully live. You know, if Jesus said, I have come to set the captives free. If he said in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We see, we don't have to look very far in America to see that in an increasing measure, that's depravity played out in front of us. People are becoming more and more trapped, more and more imprisoned in prisons of control and pride, that false sense of control. And we have the get out of jail free card in the gospel. And I'm not afraid of what's happening in our culture, arguably, in one sense, because the darker things get, the brighter the truth, the gospel shines. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people understand that there is a hope. There's a a larger story, as one author once said, a, a big picture that we're trying to get people into there's as our pastor was preaching last Sunday, he talked about kind of the values in the voting booth. And he said, we're, we're a two kingdom, a two kingdom theology. We've got the kingdom of the world in which we live. And then there's a kingdom of God in which we're adopted as sons and daughters when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And therein lies the battle, the tension we're in the kingdom of the world, but how do we live in the kingdom of God? There's an overlap there. It doesn't mean we can't influence the worldly kingdom we live in, but it means that we don't make that our idol or our first thing, as C.S. Lewis would say, or we become entitled and demanding, or we reduce our relationship with God as a as a valiant negotiation process of making my life here on earth better. Wow. So, um, <laughs> no, that, that that's great. I'm, I'm digesting it. You know, and so there, there's... I've had too much coffee today. So. <laughs> Excellent. Lucky you. Um, so there's... Uh, the evangelism, there's the sharing of God's word, the teaching of God's words in the pulpit. And I'm uh, uh, making an assumption here, but like in small groups, you're learning together. How about sort of the discipleship? How about journeying about living life together? How, how does that work? First of all, within your church, within the people who attend. But then uh, I'll come afterwards about how you actually reach out to people who, who aren't in your church, people who don't know Jesus. So, so first of all, how... How do you journey with one another? Because, I mean, uh, I don't know, there's thousands of people that go to your church, you know, and so um, right. how how do these people have, a, you know, encourage one another daily? How do they journey together? Well, I'll tell you, I'll be the first one to say that we don't do it perfectly. And, and also, as you grow larger, logistics come into play. You've all kinds of people coming to this church. But in its essence, I love the way Larry Crabb said it. He said, our relationship in this world is relating to God and putting our relationship to God in display in the way we relate to one another. And, and, and he defines agape love as putting the needs of another person ahead of my own at any cost to myself. In fact, I'd argue that's the definition for worship, you know, in Romans 12, where we, we come as a living sacrifice and Christ was the ultimate act of love by giving his life. And we're called to give our life for our brother. In essence, an act of worship then is, is coming alongside someone in relationship, not to talk about football or the weather, those are fine, but to have a relationship of substance that helps that person unpack what is most deep within them, revealing where their allegiances truly lie 
in hopes of pointing them to Christ, that they would see that the idols they have or the paths they're following are, are just wildly inefficient, that they're going to lead to narcissism and nowhere, really, and not in a debating way, but in a loving way, walking with somebody. It's that old adage, you know, people don't care how much you know, so they know how much you care. And I've lived by that. I mean, I don't do that perfectly either because I wake up and I'm the best narcissist. I love me more than anybody. And I've got every day lay that down and, re- and circle back to I'm in the kingdom of God and I'm living in a temporary world. And I've got one purpose to fulfill in the one life God's given me. And it's to help bring light and hope and freedom to all those people that are in my sphere of influence. Yeah, and if I heard you right, Neil, what you were saying is that's true worship. Amen. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I think those of us in the with evangelical backgrounds often, you know, get the idea of gathering and singing um, uh, mixed up with um, with the core of true worship. That definitely is worship or certainly can be. But true worship is the way we live. Is and and the, I would add that. Yeah, go ahead, oh, yeah. Bob. No, no. I would add to that. I love the way one one author said it. He said, you know, we need churches. They really are a means of grace, as the ancients or believers said, that, that, that the Spirit is revealed in unique ways when we gather together to worship corporately and we sing when the Word of God is preached. And one author called that framework truth. We need it. We, okay, we need to, to right, know the boundaries right. of orthodoxy. And then, and then he said that when we're getting into the lives of other people, he called that bloody truth. You know, getting the messiness of other people's lives. And, and we need all of that. But the true expression of our worship is lived out in the way we relate to one another. I agree with that. Amen. For those of you who are listening, uh, you're listening to a broadcast of the Kingdom and its stories. We do this every Monday afternoon. And in this broadcast, we invite people uh, to share their stories uh, or stories that they know about to give us examples of how we might be better bridges of love, which is a term I heard freshly today, uh, or the hands and feet of Jesus. And so, Neil, we're delighted to have you with us. Neil Montgomery, who is one of the pastors at Scottsdale Bible Church. And, um, and so, Neil, tell us, what are some examples, concrete examples, of, of how Scottsdale Bible Church or you, um, in your role as a pastor, are equipping people. Um, but not only how are you equipping them, what are some specific examples of what they have done so that our listeners can have, um, you know, just some additional examples of what this looks like? You know, it's uh, interesting you said that. I, I just came out of Bible study I was leading, and that's the one question I've asked more than anything in my life is, when as I study the Bible, what does it look like? How do you do this? We're going to do a study in Acts, and I think it's a beautiful blueprint as we watch these people fumble through trying to figure out how the Holy Spirit works. He's not a genie in the bottle. He's not a recipe I follow. But it's a God who says, go, and as you go, I'll be with you always. And, and sometimes in churches like Scottsdale Bible Church, I, I, I predominantly pastored many small churches. In fact, uh, my, my vision for many years was bringing quality ministry to rural America, you know? And so I value, and, and in many ways in small churches, they can, they can flex really fast. And if there's a need, they can address it right away. The, the challenge of big churches is that they're like the Titanic, not that they sink, but they're like a massive <laughs> ship that uh, keeps moving and they're hard to turn around. 
Mm-hmm. And we've experienced that at Scottsdale Bible. It's a ship that, that moves far and a global arm that reaches across the world and resources that are shared. And, and we have to grow larger by, as many said, it sounds trite, but it's true, by growing smaller. And so we have um, uh, small groups, as Julian alluded to, where we want people to do life together and to work with one another in traveling, you know, in family issues they struggle with. If there's a need in their small group, they meet it and they work on that. But most recently... Um, some of our pastors, we have about 43 pastors, and we can get caught up in programming and planning and decision-making and all of that. We had an opportunity with our global outreach pastor, Ethan Collins, to visit uh, the Navajo Nation, just uh, just east of Arizona there, north of Gallup in New Mexico, and work with a, a little church there who had had some resources given to them, like some semi-trucks worth of fresh food and clothing and uh, back to school supplies. And we partnered with them as pastors, about six of us. And we traveled with them in their beat up trucks and their cargo vans and, and their families all hanging on to the side right. of the vehicles. Right. And we drove about two and a half hours into a place. And, and I know some of us don't recognize or realize this, but there are places that still don't have running water or electricity. And we drove two and a half hours, two flat tires later, and the spare they put on was bald. We got to deliver fresh food and vegetables. We got to be the hands and feet. And and the reason it's so beautiful is I think so often we can forget that we're the hands and feet of Jesus. And we think maybe we're an event planner or a tourist right, planner. Right. And, and, and we feel good about the attractional model. people come. And, there's, and again, it's got a place. But we are so thirsty to be a touch directly in the front lines of people who desperately need to see the love of Jesus before they can hear the love of Jesus. Right. And so it's such a, a beautiful thing. We, we jokingly said, boy, if we were to try to do that in a large church, it would never have happened. All of our people would have had to be members and you have to be a member for six months before you can serve. They would have had to have a background check. Hmm. Uh, their vehicles would have had to have been certified by a Scottsdale Bible church certified mechanic. <laughs> and then we would have to make sure it's special insurance and, you know, and that's okay because logistically in large, that's a problem. You need to be careful. But when we went there, it was so refreshing just to pile in, go, and take the risk and the danger and Amen. experience and taste the love of Jesus, being part of the love of Jesus in the hands of feet, bridge of love, as you said. So it sounds like you were, you know, merely following the Spirit, you know, that uh, the Spirit was... You know, we, we forget sometimes, you know, that the spirit is in control and leading the way, but we, we think it's us. So um, yeah. you know, how, how did you feel? You, you're stuck out in this wonderful place, but in this place in the middle of nowhere. Uh, how, how did your control, you know, you're controlling the fine details. How did that work out? How did the spirit surprise <laughs> you? Abandon all things. <laughs> you really do. I mean, it's, 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 it's Henry Blackaby who said, figure out what the spirit is doing and get on board. And he was so right. I mean, God is moving everywhere. And sometimes we think that if it's going to be, it's up to me. And that's just a lie. When we believe that, God's quick to lay us out and show us that, no, I don't really need you, but I choose to use you. Amen. And I'll use a vessel who is set apart. And is, and I think of John 15, where Jesus said 11 times, remain in me, remain in me, or abide, abide in me. And that's the secret sauce. I mean, abiding in him, it's, we sometimes get ahead of God and think, well, you know, I don't know what God did before 1966 when I was born. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He certainly didn't need you. And he doesn't need you now. But the beautiful thing is he allows us all to have a role to play in the body of Christ. And when I walk with him, 
I discover the spiritual gifts that he's given me. I discover the passion he's placed in my heart. And I get into that swim lane. And I'll tell you, I find my joy in following him, not in doing what I want to do and asking him to rubber stamp it. Amen. Amen. Now, you in a previous show, we were speaking to someone who spoke about the paradigm shift, you know, so... So you have the the human. Um, they're uh, they want to be like Jesus, you know. It's kind of like he sounds really uh, a really nice kind of a guy, you know. Someone I'd like to spend a bit of time with, you know. He's quite impressive. Um, but but there's this paradigm shift of being who we are and being transformed to become more like Jesus. And so, as you would say, the the secret source, <laughs> as you would say, right. the, the the Holy Spirit. Um, what, what examples have you seen at Scottsdale or, or in your previous churches uh, or in your private life of how the spirit has produced this paradigm shift from, from being, um, or as C.S. Lewis said, you know, we're, like, we're not better than anyone else. We're just better than who we were in the form of Christ has made us more like him. So what, what, what examples can you give us from Scottsdale about how people are being transformed into the likeness of Christ? Well, I'm going to get fired for this, so it's been great working at Scottsdale <laughs> Bible Church. But uh, I'll say this: I think it, I think it's brokenness. I think it's I think it's uh, watching people go through trials. We're so tempted, and I this is my confession: for 25 of the 33 years, and this doesn't leave this room. I hope nobody hears what I'm about to confess. <laughs> um, 25 of my 33 years, I thought my job as a pastor was to come alongside people and and, and make them feel better. And, and so I try to fix their problem. I, and I would give them great Bible verses, and I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to fix. I just was not getting to the heart of the problem. And I would give them Bible verses. I would be winsome, tell them a few jokes, make them laugh, because I wanted people to like me. And I, I developed what many pastors develop. I developed the Messiah complex, the need to be needed. And what I learned after 25 years as a pastor is that God just had to fix all the fixes that I tried to fix. And, uh, and that's been very, very humbling for me. Uh, and what I'm learning now is that we simply are called to be like Christ in walking with people through their problems and rather than trying to solve their problems for them. Sometimes I think we step in for a work that God's trying to do by throwing benevolent money at something or, or getting people into the counseling. And those things are great. They have a place. But sometimes they keep us from coming to a place of deep brokenness, which allows us to experience surrender in our lives. And, and I'll say this, and you can interrupt me anytime you want. It's not until we get to that place that we'll even get a taste of what it could possibly be like to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Because when you when you get surrender, which I don't think most of us grasp, including myself, every day I have to remind myself, it means living sacrifice all in, not go to church and sign a card and punch my ticket to heaven and then live my life. But it means all in. And then when I surrender, I actually taste what freedom really is. Freedom is coming to the place where you say, I don't care anymore in a good way. I don't care what people think of me. I only care that God has already said I've been made right. I'm a saint because mm-hmm. of the work that Christ accomplished in me. So I have right. real freedom. Who I am yeah. because he's made me who he's yeah. made me. Yeah. And, and so my, I have the freedom to go out and take risks and live my life and, and with sort of reckless abandon, but spirit led. So I, I surrender. And, it, and that's the first building block. That'll lead to real freedom. Freedom's not doing whatever I want, whenever I want. That's bondage. And when I taste freedom, only then do I understand the third building block, and that is worship. You know, it, it, worship says, you know, in Romans 12, I, I urge you 
brethren, by the, by the uh, mercies of God, present your bodies as living. Sa- and, the, and New American Center says that's your average worship. I'd like to know what he does for extra credit. If that's just average being all in. Right, right. And what I've noticed just lastly is that when you surrender and you taste freedom and you really begin to truly see yourself as a worshiper of God 24-7, then what happens is God turns you and you begin to face outward and you begin to pour your life out in generosity or, or in what I call an outward life. And, and that's when you start to become the hands and feet of Jesus. Right. Neil, can, could I get real personal here? Um, yeah, nobody's listening, out, just you and me, Bob. I'm off base and it's okay. <laughs> but um, in your own life, what are some recent examples of how God has used you to be Jesus' hands and feet? Well, I could, I could probably, as Luke said, if I counted, wrote everything down, there wouldn't be enough books to cover. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it does stem from, and I don't mean that in, in an arrogant way, but it, it does stem through me. I had an ideal life I wanted to live. I, I have three boys. They're amazing guys. I have two daughters-in-law. They're just incredible people. But the challenge is, is I wanted to manipulate my children to have a relationship with God so that I could feel better about myself. And I think one of the first things is that God just laid that out. And, and my kids all have struggled and continue to struggle in their faith. And that really broke me many, many mornings and, and times in tears. Just life wasn't going my way. And, and it was Richard Blackaby who spoke to our, our one of our Bible studies a few years ago. He had a child who was going wayward. And in a moment, God revealed to him that that God was using his wayward child to do a work in him. It, mm. it was a paradigm shift for him. And, and when wow. I started to go, God is using my kids in their struggles. They're real kids with their own mind, body, intellect, emotion, soul, spirit. And they have to come to a place where they I can just reveal Christ to them, stack the deck in their favor, point them towards, and then I have to release them back to him. Yeah. There's real freedom in just recognizing that my goal is not to manipulate them back to behaving a certain way, but my goal is to be so close to Christ in my own life that I could move towards them from a place of health and and just live my life instead of instead of trying to keep debating them back to God, which was pushing them further away. So there was that, that relationship was 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 one of them. And then I think in ministry early on, I, I tried to do it. Like I said, I tried to be a fixer and and I spent uh, 12 years in a little church in Wisconsin. And I was I was doing spinning a bazillion plates. And after 10 years, 11 years, they started to fall and break. I, I wasn't keeping my marriage. I wasn't paying attention to my marriage and my kids. I was every time the church called, I went um, and the church was loving the ministry. It's just that my heart and my soul were dying. Wow. And I rem- remember coming to a place where we actually um, decided that we were going to leave a place that we loved that we never thought we'd ever leave just to, to control out, delete our soul. And I'll tell you, it was a, it was a powerful time in our, wow. in our lives that God brought us to the end of ourselves where we gave up the right to control the outcomes. And I've just, I'm just now beginning to taste the freedom that I've never had before. And I'm just now okay. beginning to see, that's why I love that the hands and feet of Jesus theme, the bridge of love, because I'm just starting to taste it. And the more I grow, the more humbled I get for 33 so, years. Yeah. yeah. So, so what would what would you say, Neil, you um, to other pastors who are listening 
um, what would be your advice in terms of being that bridge of love um, to um, to those pastors or leaders who might be listening? Bob, it's such a great question. And, and the more and more that I move in this culture we live in, um, I realize that we, we, we want to do something. I want to make a difference. I want my life to matter. And now I'm 53 years old and I'm realizing oh, I'm kind of average. <laughs> and it's not a bad thing because it's really I'm learning to let God's spirit move through me. And I, I guess if I were to sum it all up, I would say this. I would say, think of that word abide. Think of that word, be still and, and know that I'm God. Think of that that pressure you feel to perform and have a metric that says we got more people believing us. Let God control the outcomes. And you've learned to feed your soul and learn to abide and rest in him and let the fruit of the spirit, a la Galatians 5.22, be the thing that comes out. And you're going to see your, your ministries blossom in ways you can't even imagine. Because God's, it's Matthew 6.33, I'll say as the last thing, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Amen. There's an order of operations there. It's seeking the kingdom first. Amen. Thanks, Neil. Thanks so much for sharing with us today. And for those of you who are listening, we trust that Neil's testimony today would encourage you to think further about how you can be Jesus' hands and feet um, today and this week. We'd also encourage you, if you want to, to go to our website, and um, and tell us your story, harvestfoundation.org. We'd love to hear from you. God bless you. Thanks for listening. We'll hear another testimonial from a leader demonstrating how they and the people of the church are sacrificially loving the needy and beginning to see real change in their communities. If you have a personal example of how you are being the hands and feet of Jesus with your neighbors, we'd love to hear from you. Enter your story at harvestfoundation.org. That's harvestfoundation.org on the Contact Us tab. You can also subscribe to the podcast on The Kingdom and Its Stories on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.